and he is risen. He is, he is risen, risen indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome uh, back to another episode of In the Fire. This will be our Easter special because uh, today, as we're releasing this episode, it is Easter Sunday or uh, Resurrection Sunday, I suppose, if you would prefer to call it that. Amen. You two doing well? I'm doing swell. <laughs> I'm doing quite well, too. Are you doing, Justin? I'm not bad at all. You know, it's a uh, weather's getting nice. It's a good day to be alive, and it's a good day to remember what we're about to talk about. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah, I think we've got a um, a cool episode here on tap for you all as you're listening, and we're going to be titling it. I think Jesus's triumph through the cross. Um, as a little prelude to the episode, I'll give a little history here. So in Roman tradition, uh, emperors who were victorious in battle were treated to a kind of victory parade. And I think it normally took place in Rome. I'd have to look into that a little more. Um, but it is simply referred to in tradition as a triumph, Roman triumph. And while it wasn't necessarily like the emperor's coronation, he wasn't crowned during this thing. It was kind of a ceremony that um, was in a sense like a coming out party for him you know first big victory you go back and you have this great victory parade and you're celebrated really for this almost first time as a victorious emperor um, so it was his moment to shine moment in the sun where he took kind of this symbolic control over his kingdom in a sense um, so it's pretty interesting to read about you can look it up we'll talk about it here uh, in some detail but and then we'll talk about what it has to do with Jesus. So the question is, what does it have to do with Easter? What does it have to do with today? And to answer that, we're going to take a look in the book of Mark, specifically Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32, where Mark describes um, Jesus the moments leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. So the end of his trial here, and then as he has marched towards Golgotha, which is where... Most people think he was crucified. Also known as, what, the city of head, heads? Yeah, or the place of the skull, I think. Yeah. So there's some debate as to exactly where it is, but we won't get into the weeds on all that. <laughs> We're here for more of what it means. Mm -hmm. So let's read here, Mark 15, uh, verses 16 through 32. We can divide it up. I'll start verses 16 through uh, 20. And then, Peter, if you want to take 21 through 26 or so, and then Thomas 27 through 32. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Here we go. So this is just after the, the trial with, with Pilate. Verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall and called the praetorium, and they called, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine, mingled with myrrh, to drink, but he did not take it. 
And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him, and the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by decided or derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief of, or also, so also the chief priests with the scribes mo mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. All right, so there we have it. And then just after that, um, we won't read it, but it gets into Jesus' actual death, the moment of his death on the cross. And we've talked about an episode in the past with the veil being torn and, uh, you know, there's a sky that's darkened and, and all of that. So, um, but we're going to look at this kind of procession leading to Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, so the, the first thing to note here before we get back to this idea of the Roman triumph um, is that Mark, more so than the other Gospels, and that's why we're reading out of Mark here, kind of details some uh, very minute things, I think. You know, there's a lot of details in those verses that we just read that don't appear in the other chapters. So the question to ask is, why does Mark include those? What's really the point of, you know, going step by step through this process and telling us exactly these these small details about this, uh, about these moments leading to Jesus' crucifixion? Um, so there's one theory, and not everyone agrees to this, but I think it's interesting enough to look into for an episode. And the... Um, symbolism that we can receive from it and the ideas that we can get out of it, I think are very useful. Uh, there's one theory that he does it to relate it to this idea of the Roman triumph. So to start us in that direction, I'm going to read an excerpt from Thomas E. Schmidt's article, The Crucifixion Narrative and the Roman Triumphal Procession. So this will just be a brief overview kind of, of that Roman triumphal procession, some of the details that come along with it. Um, so listen in and Kind of follow along if you're listening into those verses that we just read in Mark, because you'll notice some similarities here in how this works. So here we go. I'll, I'll go ahead and just read this section. This is about the Roman emperor. The Praetorians gather early in the morning to proclaim the triumphator. He is dressed in the triumphal garb, and a crown of laurel is placed on his head. The soldiers then shout in acclamation of his lordship and perform acts of homage to him. They accompany him from their camp through the streets of the city. The sacrificial, sacrificial victim is there in the procession, and alongside walks the official carrying the implement of his coming death. The procession ascends finally to the place of death's head, or the place of the head, where the sacrifice is to take place. The triumphator is offered the ceremonial wine. He does not drink it, but it is poured out on the altar at the moment of sacrifice. Then, at the moment of being lifted up before the people, at the moment of the sacrifice, again the triumphador is acclaimed as Lord, and his vice-regents appear with him in confirmation of his glory. Following the lead of the soldiers, the people gather with their leaders and the vice-regents themselves and join in the acclamation. The epiphany is confirmed in portents by the gods, saying, 
truly this man is one of the gods. So you see some similarities there, and we're going to get into exactly what those similarities are, because I think it is honestly fascinating that Mark would mirror something like that so closely. So um, again, one theory as to why Mark includes such specific details in his text, the Jesus crucifixion, is that he's directly comparing it to the triumph, for, triumph parade of a Roman emperor. Um, and in doing this, it's almost as if he's writing and he's saying that with their actions leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, the Roman executors of Jesus are essentially, in an ironic way, and perhaps a better word, in a tragic way, proclaiming him king. And some things are doing pure, purely out of mockery. Um, but because it mirrors it so closely, you know, some people theorize that that's what Mark is getting at, and that's what we're going to look at today. So we'll compare some of these elements um, between these two, uh, Mar what Mark said and what, you know, this triumphal procession looked like. And then after that, we'll look more importantly kind of at why it matters. So let's look at verses 16 through 20. You guys see anything here that um, you want to get to? This is before the procession, the march starts. Any details that stick out? Um, to me, definitely the, like you talk about just the, the minute details that Mark includes in this passage. And you can see some of them in 16 through 20. I'm, I'm thinking of the, you know, the purple uh, garment that they put on him, uh, the crown of thorns. Um, and those are, you know, like the color purple is a is a very strong color and it also you know is the color of royalty um it's probably an expensive color back then to make um and so mark including it you know you have to think there is some intent there that it um corresponds to uh something some sort of royalty reference there um and i think you know it's a great comparison comparing it to you know a triumphal entry um and then also you mentioned the crown of laurel here at mentioned the crown of thorns which sort of goes into the mockery and the scorn that uh, jesus is receiving that leads it leads this triumph quote-unquote triumph if you will being um as you mentioned ironic and tragic at the same time yeah um i i think it's honestly startling the amount of um similarities there are here to the the Roman triumph. <laughs> I think it's kind of amazing. Um, but I th the end of this little passage here, like 19 and 20, um, when they're, they're striking him on the head with the rod, which is like a nod to a scepter. And then 20, like after they had thoroughly mocked him in the purple garments they strip him of it and they put on his own clothes again and i think that's important because they're like we're not even going to give this man we're not going to allow him to die in, in the thing we mocked him and it was just solely for the purpose of like you're king wear this and then we're going to mock you all right now let's kill you and they took it back because um, they obviously didn't believe he deserved to wear it on the cross. It was just for pure mockery. Right. Yeah, and if you follow along with um, what I read earlier about the 
the Roman triumph at the start of it. I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's kind of step by step here. And what, what I read is um, a summary of what happened. It doesn't include everything, which is why some people don't always agree to this theory that uh, Thomas E. Schmidt had is that he does omit certain parts of the Roman procession, such as like they would paint the emperor's face red um, and he would be in a chariot uh, and he would have kind of people walking alongside of whispering stuff in his ears in a certain sense, I can see that kind of being true with Jesus. You know, don't paint his face red, but I'm sure it's red with blood. <laughs> um, he's not in a chariot, but he's kind of being carried there. He's being led there by other people because he's too weak to do it himself right. uh, in a human sense. But not everyone agrees to this. But from what I read, it is step by step. You know, Mark mentions the praetorium gathering together. That's what happened in the Roman procession. Then he mentions the robe of purple and the crown, the crown of thorns that Jesus had. The emperor would have worn purple and worn a crown. Um, and then as Mark mentions that they salute him, hail king of the Jews. That's what they say, not they say king of the Jews to the Roman emperor, but they hail him as king. The soldiers shout an acclamation of his lordship. So it's it's sad. It's a tragic way of doing this, but they are proclaiming Jesus King in a sense. Um, and I think the purple and the crown are the obvious ones. And the crown certainly speaks to the pain that Jesus went through, which is a whole nother portion of this physical pain. Um, and we'll get to that later, I think too. But it, it, Jesus is ironically worshiped here, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, I think that the, there's an accentuation of, of the irony with the purple robe um you know purple it's an expensive i mean it's expensive color expensive dye whatever to to make and only people of high status wear it um and so then the question that i came up with is why would they use or waste an expensive robe if they just put it on jesus um and then end up taking it off as thomas you mentioned um if not for the purpose to sort of parallel the triumph or make a mockery of um him becoming king you know um so i thought that was just an interesting thing that um thing that they did there <laughs> and i think it just yeah. yeah 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 i did see somewhere that it, it possibly could have been more of a cast off and faded rag with enough color to look purple but i think you're still right in that um the purple for whatever reason i don't know exactly why he wasn't finding the right dyes or colors but it was a, a difficult to make and expensive which is why it's for royalty yeah <laughs> um i also want to note another detail which i wasn't mentioned in the schmidt excerpt that i read um but the roman emperor through this procession would hold um like a scepter in his hand and just as another parallel in matthew 27 Verse 29, Mark doesn't mention, but Matthew mentions that um, when they had platted, placed a crown of thorns on his head, they put a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Mark just mentioned that they take this reed and stri strike him on the head with it. So they probably give it to him, is what people think, and then take it away and then hit him with it. So just another way of you know, mocking him as a king that he claimed to be, and he is, but for them, he just claimed it. Yeah. Um, 
another thing I wanted to note here is I was reading Proverbs, a passage in Proverbs the other day before we prepared for this, and I read a verse, Proverbs 17:5, He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. Um, which I thought was an interesting verse. Um, when it says the poor, I sort of think of, you know, Jesus as his humble, meek, lowly status. Um, and these guards are essentially mocking Jesus um, and in a way reproaching God. Um, <clears throat> I thought this ties in nicely with what's going on in this passage. Um, I also wanted to read a excerpt from the late great Charles Spurgeon about this, <laughs> yes. about this moment. <laughs> um, and he goes to say, uh, quote, see that scarlet robe. It is a contemptuous imitation of the imperial robe that a king wears. See above all the crown upon his head. It has rubies in it, but the rubies are composed of his own blood, forced from his blessed temples by the cruel thorns. See, they pay him homage, but the homage is their own filthy spittle which runs down his cheeks. They bow the knee before him, but it is only in mockery. They salute him with the cry, Hail, King of the Jews, but it is done in scorn. Was there ever grief like this? Um, so that really gets to the, the tragic nature of the mockery that these guards are uh, applying onto Jesus. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, like, the same people who are doing this are the people Jesus died for. Right. He died for the soldier that spat on his face. And that's got to hurt, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. And I think the, the word grief is spot on from that Spurgeon quote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. And the, the yeah, Thomas, the verses there that come to mind are like, Jesus crushed for our iniquities. You know, the, the same sins that brought him to the cross and that these guards are <laughs> using to crucify him um, are the same things that Jesus is dying for, which is the ultimate irony there um yeah but, but yeah yeah and i think it's right before his death i don't see it in mark here in another one of the gospels where jesus says like forgive them they know not what they do right mm-hmm. um so he's you know asking for forgiveness for these people and um i mean you add to that the physical pain which is just un like we can't even imagine the physical pain of this and what happened before this and what happens after what we're reading. Um, but also like the, the emotional pain, knowing that Jesus, Jesus knows he is the king, the ultimate king, but he's being mocked for being that king here. I mean, that's got to be painful. Yeah. Um, just from a, an emotional, <laughs> psychological standpoint. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a difficult, painful thing to imagine you know, just thinking about it, what Jesus is enduring here, but ultimately he knows like the end goal and what he has to do. Um, yeah, not an easy thing to think about. Not at all. Um, and with that, that note, unless there's anything to add, we'll move on to the uh, next portion of this, which would be verses 21 through 26. And then that'll extend down past that into like 32 also, if we want to mention anything from there. Um, but if you look at your Bible and read those verses again as we talk through them, you'll see more similarities between Jesus's. This is the march to his crucifixion now. So after they take off the robe and he's, you know, he's still got the crown of thorns on, but this is when he's actually walking to the hill to be crucified, walking through the town as a Roman emperor would be led through the town. And Mark actually says, um, 
that they led him out to be crucified. So he uses those same kind of words, um, interestingly enough, to to talk about this. Again, kind of alluding to Jesus' kingship, his lordship. Um, so, I mean, just some similarities right off the bat here from verses 21 through 26. Um, first one would be that procession idea, but then the next one is kind of this Simon of Cyrene coming along. Um, and this isn't just something that Mark mentions. This is something that they all mention here. Um, but as Jesus is walking along, he gets help from Simon, a Cyrenian, <laughs> in carrying the cross. And if you remember the Schmidt excerpt, um, along with the Roman emperor, as he was being marched through the city off to be, you know, proclaimed king, would be a sacrificial victim, as it says there. But it, from what I could pick up on, it's a sacrificial bull that they bring along. And then at the end, the emperor will sacrifice that bull to the Roman gods. So Jesus is essentially <laughs> both the emperor and the sacrificial victim in this moment. And then uh, according to this, this idea, this theory that we're going over today, Simon the Cyrenian would be, as it says in um, the excerpt that I read on the triumph, let's see exactly what it says. Uh, they accompany from their camp. The sacrificial victim is there in the procession. Jesus is in the procession and alongside walks the official carrying the implement of his coming death, kind of comparing Simon of Cyrene to that official carrying the implement of death, implement of Jesus' death being the cross. Just another um, <laughs> similarity. Jesus also offered wine and he refuses it. The Roman emperor would have been offered wine and would have refused it for different reasons. Um, I think the Roman emperor was doing it more symbolically, you know, as a, I, I don't need that. I'm giving it to the gods. Jesus refuses this wine from what I could pick on, pick up on because they would have offered this wine mixed with myrrh to him as kind of a painkiller. Yeah. And Jesus didn't want to numb the pain at all which in and of itself is pretty <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, I find like the, the refusal to drink the wine uh, very interesting here because it does in the triumphal, in the, the triumphal procession, you know, you have the, um, I think one of these articles called it the triumphator who Jesus uh, is when he essentially refuses to, drink the wine as an emperor would um and then it is poured on the altar uh to represent the blood of the sacrifice or the bull um and here immediately after it mentions jesus uh refusing to drink the wine he is then crucified so then he becomes the sacrifice uh the blood that is of the wine that the wine or the blood that represents the wine um or the wine that represents the blood i should say uh, it's poured on the altar uh, to represent the blood of the sacrifice, which is now Jesus. Um, so I really like the sort of the the duality of the role here, the double role, where Jesus is the triumphator and the sacrifice, um, which is a, a, like a twist on the this whole uh, triumphal procession that the emperor normally would do. It is, yeah. Oh. And then I want to get to the last 
similar and glaringly obvious one at the end of this in uh, verses 25 and 26, they, it says they crucified Jesus. And then 26, the inscription of his accusation was written above and it declares him, it writes on there, the King of the Jews. So in this last, last little bit here, at the end of the Roman triumph, they would have, you know, finally put the king up on the hill with his people, his cohort surrounding him, all the people out watching, and would have proclaimed him king as he makes this sacrifice. Here we see Jesus written above his head, the king of the Jews, as he is sacrificed, um, which is just one final form of mockery that we see for him. But ironically, it is a mockery that is truly, as Mark is getting to here, I think, I think this theory makes sense. Mark is getting at, they are kind of proclaiming Jesus King tragically, sadly, ironically. Yeah. And it, it goes back to the sacrifice too. Like he's being sacrificed as they're proclaiming him King, just as they are sacrificing the wine right. as they're proclaiming him King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even in, in, in triumph, like they would say, truly, this man is one of the gods. And when Jesus died um, and the veil was torn and he, like, it, he said, this is, it, it is over. It is finished. Um, the centurion said, truly, this man was the son of God. And mm-hmm. like, that's just right on the nose. <laughs> You know, and also it's just right, like, yeah. <laughs> dang, what did we just do? It's kind of like that eye-opening moment at the end. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> they're mocking just... him when before the crucifixion and leading up to it, they're mocking him for being king, as if he's not worthy to be king. And then this, <laughs> and then the death happens, the veil's torn, and then they say, certainly this is the son of God. Um. Which again harkens to the, the irony and tragedy of the story. Yeah, and I think Thomas, it was interesting. He said, like, you know, they, you know, proclaim him king there, the centurion, truly this man is the son of God. And the veil is torn, and the Pharisees are probably there. They're seeing the sky get dark, you know, the storm roll in, the veil is torn, uh, whatever else happens, earthquakes, and <laughs> as God looks away and there, there has to be this moment where they're thinking, oh, no, <laughs> he may have been right. <laughs> um, and if you watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I think you get a good sense of that. I've not seen it in about a year, but I'll probably watch, <laughs> watch it this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like you, the way that movie's put together, however accurate it may be, it gives you that sense where you know, it zeroes in on the individual people like the Roman soldier there who recognizes what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just really makes you think, and there's only so much that we can say about it. I yeah. Think. Yeah. But that's definitely a movie I think we all recommend. It's emotional. You definitely feel the weight of what's happening. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah, I recommend it. <laughs> Um, so with that in mind, we've looked at these parallels as Jesus is proclaimed king. Now we're going to kind of look at why it matters. So, you know, in this, resur- in this crucifixion and resurrection, we have Jesus becoming 
I mean, he already was, but really like becoming king through being crucified, through being resurrected. He's kind of proclaimed king, tragically proclaimed king here um, in a sad way, but he is the king. <laughs> That's what this goes to show us. So the question now is, you know, with everything Jesus went through in becoming king, what exactly does it mean? Why exactly does it matter? Why does Mark stress this? Why is he telling us all this information? There's got to be a reason for it. Um, so to answer that question, we're going to look at some passages in scripture. We'll start um, in Isaiah 53, and I think we got a couple other cross-references in here. But for now, we're going to go ahead and flip back to Isaiah 63, if you guys will join me there. I've got to go find it in my Bible. <laughs> 53 or 63? Okay. 53, Isaiah 53, which is going to kind of show the same, a similar idea, I think. Jesus is kind of this tragic king figure, but a true king figure. Um, so this has 12 verses. Uh, I can take one through four. We'll go in the same order. Peter, if you want to do five to eight, right. Thomas nine Perfect. to 12. All right, here we go. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shoes is silent, so, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, and a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the great transgressor, or for the great, for the transgressors. So there we have it. I think that's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible right there. Um, you know, many, many years in advance of Jesus' crucifixion, we're getting this prophecy with a lot of many prophecies in there that all come true through uh, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and his death. Um, and I think, you know, what jumps out to me here 
is just as his triumph, which we just went through, was kind of an ironic triumph. It was not how anyone would expect a king to be honored. Um, Jesus' life described here in Isaiah 53 is not really one that anyone would expect of a king, but I think it's because Jesus was this kind of anti-king figure that makes him truly the greatest king that we could ever have and we could ever worship. Mm -hmm. The passage, um, the verses, verse seven, I guess, here, um, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Um, that's not something you would really think of a king of doing. Um, here you have Jesus who chooses to endure all for his people by staying silent and accepting what punishment these Romans are doing to him. Um, and in doing that, he humbles himself and went before us so that we could be saved. Uh, again, being crushed for our iniquities that sent him to the cross. Um, so it's not really a king who sits you know, high and mighty and privileged on the throne, can speak out and um, stop this from happening, um, but rather one who was a lamb or a bull, if you will, if we look at the triumphal entry, uh, who chooses the path of sacrifice, which is really anti-king in a worldly sense, but because of that, ultimately eternal king in a heavenly sense. Um, and while, you know, while earthly kings conquer other people or other armies or whatever, Jesus the king uh, conquers death, which is the ultimate, ultimate kingship, I think. I agree. Yeah. And you talk about the, <laughs> we talked about the similarities between what Mark writes and what a Roman triumph would have looked like. But how about the similarities between what all the gospels say? We just read it in Mark, so we'll go to Mark. But what Mark writes about in Jesus' crucifixion and what Isaiah is saying here so much earlier in time. Like you can read this and clearly see that it's talking about everything that happened to Jesus. Oppressed, afflicted, led as a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep before its shearers. He was silent, cut off from the living. Um, and it's it's sad but it's, it's right on. Um, and, you know, we, in kind of the names of God, names of Jesus episode that we did, we talked about man of sorrows briefly and alluded to this chapter and how you would not expect Jesus, a king, to be called a man of sorrows. You would not expect him to have to suffer such pain and, and torment because he's a king. Why would a king ever have to deal with that? But he does, and it's what makes him the greatest king yeah the the sorrow the grief which are words that are repeated in this passage that jesus endured i mean just trying to picture that you know all that he went through and he did that for us out of his love for us um which is truly remarkable and just gives me chills you know <laughs> mm -hmm. i like verse 10 of isaiah 53 and yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief and to kind of go off what you guys said like this was <laughs> god's plan <laughs> for jesus to suffer in the way that he yeah. did um and and that's kind of crazy 
you know, like a loving father sending his son to be treated in, in such a way out of his love for every, all, all of his children, right? It's, it really kind of shows you what, like the lengths at which God is willing to go to save us, the love of God through that. And also like just what God is willing to endure for us. He's willing to endure it all. Yeah. <laughs> all the temptations, all the pain, all the suffering, all the sin, all at once so that we might be called children of God. Right. Right. I like this. And it's that last point there. It doesn't, we might be yeah. called children of God, but oh, sorry. Go ahead, um, I'd like to share another Spurgeon quote here, which I think ties into what you were saying, Thomas. Um, it goes, it was not of any love to suffering that Jesus refused the wine cup. Ah, no, Christ had no love of suffering. He had love of souls, but like us, he turned away from suffering. He never loved it. Why then did he suffer? For two reasons. Because the suffering to the utmost was necessary to the completion of the atonement, which saves to the utmost. And because the suffering to the utmost was necessary to perfect his character as a merciful high priest who has the compassionate souls that have gone to the utmost of miseries themselves, that he might know how to suffer them when they are, that them that they are, them that are tempted. Um, which I think, you know, speaks to, you know, what God and, you know, Jesus as God endured uh, out of his love and compassion for us. Um, and he also set the model of suffering that, you know, we in our own lives may share in his suffering, that our suffering may be, that we may suffer well or easier knowing that Jesus, um, we can relate with Jesus and that he suffered the ultimate uh, suffering or sacrifice, if you will. Yeah, and, and I think connecting both of those points, um, Jesus suffered the sacrifice, and Thomas, you mentioned God knowing what's about to happen, God sending his son in. Um, it's like God, God the Father knows, but how about God the Son, Jesus knowing this? You know, when Jesus is going into the world, he knows the plan. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to live his life out just to die in 30 years. Um and then, you know, leading up to it, I think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, on the ground asking if there's a way, another way that this can happen, praying to his father, then let it, let it happen. But he says, but not my will, but yours be done. He's willing to accept this. He knows the full extent of everything that he's going to go through because he is yeah. God. <laughs> he knows it's going to happen. And if he wanted, he could have ended it. At any point, you know, when we read um, in Mark, the Roman soldiers are up there saying, if you are truly God, come down from the cross right now. And yeah. he could have done it. He could have in one moment just, okay, I've had enough. I can't do this. Um, I'm going to end it right now and come down. You're right. But yeah, he chooses not and the to. The Isaiah verses mentions twice. He opened not his mouth. Um you know, it's, mm -hmm. this is the will of the Lord. Jesus knew what he had to accomplish. Yeah. And I think, you know, we see why he accomplished it. At the end of this Isaiah 53 chapter that we're reading, you read verses 10 through 12, and you see why it's happening. We know why, but it says, Isaiah says it here, you know, verse 11, 
he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge, um, which what my Bible says, knowledge, meaning having insight into one's mission. So by knowing his mission, um, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Uh, Jesus knows the purpose behind this, and this is why he doesn't come down. And I, I can guarantee if it was me up on that cross, I would, <laughs> and if I had the power to end it, oh, man. <laughs> end the suffering, I would be yeah. down on the ground in a heartbeat. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, Jesus knows what's happening. He knows that by his suffering, he shall justify many by bearing their iniquities. Isaiah is saying this uh, thousands of years before. And Jesus does it yeah. thousands of years later. The plan has come true. Fruition. God's plan. Um, yeah. I think <laughs> that this would not be a good Easter episode if we didn't read the resurrection of Jesus. Um, yeah, I'm happy yeah. to. Let's give All it a read here. We got a few minutes. Uh, do you want to do the Mark <laughs> or the Matthew version? Uh, let's stick yeah. in Mark. It's He's just been here the, the whole time. It's just the next chapter <laughs> over. Um, yep. So yeah, yeah. we're just yeah. We'll end we'll go, on a happy um, note here. <laughs> we want to go through to the disciples. That would be verses let's one to 13. 13. Yeah, that worked. All right, so let's do it. We'll just go one through four, uh, five through eight, or five through nine, and then I'll go 10 through 13. All right. Sounds good. I'll start us off and we'll close it on a very positive note here for Easter Sunday. <laughs> Mark 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that, may, that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very Entering large. the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Do you want to continue into the Great Commission? All right. Let's do it. Yeah, let's finish it out. Just keep on going. <laughs> Yeah, I can pick up at 14 here. <laughs> Later, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. I'm on it. Peter's <laughs> one. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, they will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Thomas? Yes, sir. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. All right. Amen. Amen. And there yeah. you have it, you know, the outcome of all this. <laughs> what we're to do in response. It's, it's a glorious day, a glorious yeah. moment. Ultimate King Jesus yeah. conquering death so that we, can no that we may no longer be dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Amen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll finish up on that happy note there at the end. I was kind of at certain points a somber episode, <laughs> but that's what you get. We're combining kind of that Good Friday feel with the Resurrection Sunday. So there has to be an element of tragic sadness mm -hmm. to it because that's what it is um, until the ultimate point when it turns around. And, you know, we see all that glory coming to yeah. fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll give a prayer here real quick, and then we can close it down. Dear Lord, thank you for this time we have to gather. And uh, thank you for this weekend, God. Some 2,000 years ago, when you sent your son, uh, your son came and died on the cross for us, God, and went through everything that we read today. We thank you so much for that, for everything that it means, as tragic and as sad as it was, God, that he was willing to do that, and and you were willing to do that for us. Uh, I pray that we would consider what it means this weekend and uh, make a commitment to put that first in our lives and, and strive towards what we're called towards because of what happened on this weekend 2,000 years ago. Pray this Amen. 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 All right. Well, for our listeners out there, if uh, you want to interact with us, please do follow us on Instagram at in the fire podcast is our username uh, just spelled like it sounds in the fire podcast. And then if you want to reach out to us via email, have an idea for something you want us to go over one of these weeks or just want to get in touch, you can reach us there. Uh, the email is three in the fire at gmail.com. The number three in the fire at gmail.com. That's all I've got. Yeah. Happy Easter, everyone. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful Happy day. Easter. He is risen. He is risen. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You two enjoy. Likewise. Everyone have a great week.